0: Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory & Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee, and today we are going to talk about sin. Why is sin such a big deal? What is sin? Where did it come from? How did it change? We're going to talk about how sin developed as a concept for Western culture from the very beginnings of Christianity up through the 4th century. My guest on the phone is Dr. Paula Fredrickson. She is the author of a new book called Sin, the Early History of an Idea. Uh, Dr. Fredrickson, uh, uh, up through 2010, was the William Goodwin Aurelio Chair of the Appreciation of Scripture at Boston University. She's now Emerita, and she's published widely on the social and intellectual history of ancient Christianity from the late Second Temple period to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, and she is with me on Religion for Life. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Fredrickson. Thank you very much. Uh, Why a book on sin? How How did you come to write this book?
1: Like like most ideas about books, it, uh, it appeared by itself, the idea, by surprise. I was uh, engaged with a project, um, a larger project, which I published a few years ago on Augustine's attitude toward Jews and Judaism. And I noticed, because I was reviewing uh, people and religious thinkers from Paul in the New Testament to Augustine in the 5th century, that a lot of the ideas about um, what, what Jesus's function was, both uh, not only for individual humans, but in terms of the entire cosmos, and what uh, the, the new message of uh, Christianity as a new religious movement was, and also how this was the real surprise, the way that the personality of God was configured all had touched on ideas of sin. And how that was imagined because Christ is, in some sense, imagined as sin's remedy. So um, it was a very natural segue from the Augustine project to, to this other project.
0: And in your book, uh, you, it's divided into three chapters. The first covers uh, Jesus and Paul, the second, Justin, Valentinus, and Marcion, and the third, Origen, and Augustine, Uh, these seven figures you trace spanning over four centuries. Uh, Why these seven?
1: Um, They were, first of all, I had to um, put this, uh, package the uh, research into uh, three tablespoons because I had been asked by Princeton University to do a series of uh, public lectures on the topic, and um, I chose Jesus and Paul to start with because um, even though they each imagine themselves as Jews with the correct interpretation of Judaism, um, and they each uh, function within a religious environment where animal sacrifices are part of the protocol that humans engage with when they begin a process of repentance, which is... Um, sort of the ethical response to to human sin. Um, Nonetheless, though these two figures historically function in that context, retrospectively they're seen as two of the foundational figures of Christianity, which becomes a religion quite different from and separate from, uh, ultimately hostile to, Judaism. So they seemed like um, a very rich place to start because they live in one world, but they become the origins of another world religiously. And the second set of figures, who are Christian theologians in the second century, are arguing with each other over how to interpret not only Paul's letters and the stories about Jesus that appear in the Gospels. Both of those bodies of literature are in Greek. But they also argue with each other over the correct way to interpret Jewish scripture, even though they themselves are Gentiles, not Jews. And it's a lot of the theological argumentation and work that goes on in that early second century period that creates the religion that we know as Christianity. So they were, one of the reasons I grabbed onto them is that they ha- have such a nice contrast with each other, but they're all making their arguments by an appeal to the same scriptural verses, both in the Jewish Bible, which is, exists in Greek in this period. And, and also these documents that will eventually, in another century or so, become the Christian New Testament. And then finally, the, the third piece of the triptych, uh, it was easy to pick. It was It's the uh, theological equivalent of doing a closing chapter on Mozart and Beethoven. Uh, Origen and Augustine are two of the geniuses of the ancient Church, and they come to almost completely different visions of the personality of God and how God wants humans to deal with human sin, even though they are, again, appealing particularly to the very same passages in the Letters of Paul to make their case. So these seven figures, once we get them all lined up, are all in uh, very precise cultural moments of the development of what, what will become Christianity, and they have interesting disagreements with each other. Something I wanted to convey to um, my listeners when I first gave this as lectures, and certainly to my readers once I wrote the lectures up, is um, the radical contingency of how ideas develop and also the intellectual excitement of how ideas develop. And that's how I picked the seven figures that I did. They contrast, but they cohere.
0: One of, well, let's, let's start with, with our first guy, Jesus. Um, one of the challenges regarding Jesus is that we really don't have access to his thoughts firsthand. We have stories about him and he didn't write anything. So as you distinguish him from the thoughts of the gospel writers, who did you find? Who, who is the historical Jesus? And, and, and particularly in how it relates to sin.
1: Well, the historical Jesus, as you just said, is, is uh, the end point of an investigative process. He's not somebody we meet when we flip open uh, to the Gospels mm-hmm. in the New Testament. When he talks about um, sin and, well, his first line, his walk online in the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest Gospel probably written shortly after the destruction of the Temple in 70, so therefore about 40 years after Jesus' death, um, Jesus' first line in that gospel is, Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So, by having his first call be to repentance, he's already uh, conjuring the idea of sin. I mean, sin is something you uh, repent of. There's different passages scattered throughout the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke where when Jesus talks about sin or talks about repentance, he ties it in with specifically with the, the Ten Commandments. And that seems to be his focus on um, how you, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is how to identify when you have erred. And um, so the Ten Commandments seems to be a touchstone for him. And um, when he talks about repentance, he talks specific. I like. it's hard not to like Jesus when you do uh, work on him. One of the things he talks about is that, um, You can't hold a grudge. Once you forgive somebody, you really have to forgive them, as as the saying in Matthew is, from your heart. So you have to. If you don't want God to hold a grudge against you because you've sinned, even though you said you're sorry, when somebody has sinned against you and apologizes, you have to really forgive them and not hold a grudge, even though they've said they're sorry um, also. The other interesting thing about the Gospel material is that uh, it comes from a period, as I said, after the Temple's destroyed, but there are traditions in it of Jesus instructing his followers how to uh, bring temple offerings so that's something that survives the destruction of the temple and it might be something that goes back to the historical Jesus so Jesus is integrated in this um... movement of a call to repentance where he says that God is a forgiving God but he also says, and it's a kind of cautionary tale um, that you should treat others the way you want God to treat you. So that's another warning against uh, forgiveness half-heartedly.
0: And my guest is Dr. Paula Fredrickson. She is the author of Sin, the Early History of an Idea uh, on Religion for Life. She is the uh uh, William Goodwin, Aurelio, Chair Emerita of Appreciation of Scripture at Boston University. And we're talking about uh, how sin has uh, changed and moved through these first four centuries. And one of the uh, challenges in reading these ancient authors is to understand their conception of the universe. Can you describe how Paul and these other thinkers saw their universe?
1: Jesus' world in uh, the the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tends to stay terrestrial. He's dealing. You know, he doesn't take heavenly journeys in those Gospels. He's, he's dealing with demons that cause illness. Um, those demons are sort of smallish local powers, and he's in control of them. That's one of the signifiers of his authority in these stories. When Paul tells us about his universe, it's, it's a much larger place than, than Jesus's universe. Paul talks about His cosmic opposition, pagan gods who are in control of stars and planets. He talks about um, the resistance that he's getting from wind and weather, which is very often the domain of lower gods. He's talking about, uh, he'll say very casually to his uh, pagan audience in Corinth, look, we all know that there are many gods and many laws, lords, but we worship, God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's, he knows that he's dealing in a, in a universe that's congested not only with demonic powers, but with divine powers that are hostile to Paul and his mission. And he identifies these hostile divine powers with the gods whom his former pagan audiences worshipped. So he is mapping this hostility onto his vision of the cosmos where the earth is at the center of the universe and then the next closest body you have outside of the earth is the moon and then you have the, f- the five planets known to antiquity and the sun and then above that you have the realm of the fixed stars so it's like glass balls suspended within each other and particularly in the realm below the moon these evil forces have a tremendous amount of power so Paul, when he's talking about bringing his message to pagans, where he's again giving an apocalyptic message, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now he's talking about pagan sin, and the ultimate pagan sin in the eyes of, of Jews is that they worship idols and worship gods who are not really the, the, the high God, which is the God of Israel. So he's telling his pagans to repent of the sin of idolatry, to commit to worshiping the God of Israel through his son, Jesus, whom Paul has never known in the flesh, but whom Paul has gotten to know, in a sense, through resurrection visions he's had of of Jesus. And that's one of the ways Paul knows that the kingdom of God really is at hand, because He's seen somebody who's been resurrected, and resurrection is one of the general expectations for the coming kingdom of God.
0: And then we move on into the second century, and this kingdom of God hasn't come. And so now the theologians have to kind of scramble and figure out how they understand sin and and the human condition uh, when we're going to be here for a little while. Is that right?
1: Well, it's awkward when you begin with a vigorous prophecy that time is about to end, and then time doesn't end on time. So your options are either to throw out those traditions, which nobody wants to do, or to reinterpret them. And obviously, if time has gone on, everybody's into the next century. Not that people are measuring by um, Anno Domini yet, but there it's been 100 years. Nothing nothing has changed. How do you make sense of these traditions? And what we have with these three gentile christian authors is a way of trying to make sense both of the cosmos and of this message of redemption and repentance of sin they're trying to figure out why do people sin anyway to begin with and they're also trying to make sense of jewish scripture there are no christian scriptures yet in the period between 100 and 150 people are looking at paul's letters and they're looking at the gospels But what they consider scripture is the same scriptures that that, uh, Jews like Paul are reading, the the Jewish scriptures written in Greek. So how they're trying to make sense of that, they begin to try to, maybe the reason people sin, says Valentinus, is because of ignorance. If they knew better, they wouldn't sin. And so he generates um, ways of reading the story in Genesis um, where it becomes a meditation for how to, get, how to get knowledge so that you know who the high God is. According to Valentinus, the God who's represented in Jewish scriptures is not the Father of Christ. The Father of Christ is a God who's above that God, who's a higher God. And the way you know that the God in the Jewish Bible is the lower God is precisely because he's involved with the organization of the, of the material cosmos. So this is a very vigorous, um, energetic form of Christianity that's something modern readers tend not to know about or appreciate very much because um, Valentinus lost. Valentinian Christianity ultimately lost, but not until the 4th century. And in the the 2nd century, that's how Valentinus is trying to uh, operate with the idea of sin. Then we have another uh, Gentile Christian who is looking at uh, the Jewish Bible, saying, you know, this, this God, the, character, the chief character of the Jewish Bible is not the Father of Christ. Um, he's a lower God because he organizes the material cosmos. Uh, the Father of Christ is the God above him whom we can only know through the revelation of Christ. And so Marcion, when he talks about um, sin, also has this, um, this idea of the remedy of sin is revelation that people couldn't help but sin because they didn't know what was actually the truth of the matter until Christ came uh, and brought the message. Marcion's the one who says that Paul's letters should be considered Christian scripture and not the Jewish Bible at all because the Jewish God is for the Jews and the Christian God is somebody who's revealed only through Christ. And then finally their contemporary, Justin, um who's arguing bitterly with these other two Christian communities, um, insists, no, the, uh, the Bible of the Jews is actually our Bible. It's a Christian Gentile Bible. And the chief character that um, the Bible talks about is actually Christ before his incarnation. So that all the times that Abraham is pictured talking with God, he's actually talking with Christ. And when Moses is getting legislation from God, he's actually talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. So by looking at it this way, Justin ends up reconfiguring how to read the Jewish Bible and ends up with a definition of sin that he ends up identifying with a Jewish reading of the Jewish Bible. And the correct reading of the Jewish Bible, which is, which is not sinful, is, is Justin's own reading, but Justin's making that anti-Jewish claim in a context not where he's arguing against Jews, but where he's arguing against Valentinus and Marcion, two other, two other Gentile Christians. It's, it's a very vigorous, um, very animated, and very very intellectually ingenious fight over how to interpret sin and how to interpret basically your own place in the, in the universe if you're going to have a particular idea of sin.
0: If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Dr. Paula uh, Her She is the author of Sin, the Early History of an Idea. She is a, an expert on the social and intellectual history of ancient Christianity uh, for the first uh, four centuries or so, and we're moving into this uh, into the fourth and fifth century with the figures, or, or uh, third century too, with the figures of Origin and Augustine. And uh, by this, and so by this time, they are both thinking of of sin in terms of a, of a, a great power, aren't they? That it's not it's more than just deeds done. That's right.
1: For both for both Origin and for Augustine, sin has made the shift from. Uh, something, something uh, wrong that one does to um, a condition that one is born into. Once you're, you're conscious, once you're a, a thinking human being, you realize, if you're thinking the way Origen or Augustine does, you realize that your entire situation is the result of sin, which means that you didn't, in a sense, personally commit it. You're, you're plunged into the situation where you need redemption. And for both of them, the, uh, the only redemption that works is through the Redeemer figure, um, the Redeemer figure of, of Jesus. Origen is um, he's not a bishop. He's, I think of him as the ultimate professor. He's an, an intellectual and um, a biblical interpreter, and his language is Greek and his philosophical background is is platonic as is Augustine's and he is he works with this amazingly beautiful idea of God where he takes the two chief biblical characteristics of God, that God is both just and merciful and applies those two ideas to his idea of sin and the physical cosmos And he says that since God is both just and merciful, and we're in a situation of sin, how is it that God wants to be redeemed, and how did we get here to begin with? And he tells a story of the origin of sin that goes back to a time before any matter existed. When souls were, the souls of everything, the souls of stars and planets, the souls of what will be human beings, the souls of angels and what will be demons, are all in this um, cosmic, non material soup contemplating and loving God, and then they start to slip. They start to slip away. And that's not a problem because only God is without change, says origin. But the problem is that they, once they start slipping, they don't stop themselves from slipping, and that's where the idea of sin comes in. They should have willed themselves to stop at a certain point. And God, who loves his creation and wants these souls all to be saved, ends up creating matter so that these different souls have different types of bodies, and each body is a learning situation for that particular soul. And this... Gives Origin tremendous flexibility with explaining the problem of evil. If, if a baby is born blind, if somebody has a horrible handicap or they're suffering, he can say, "Well, that's that's the particular type of physical body that this soul needed, and God is trying to help that soul learn whatever it is that that soul has to learn, so that it can genuinely pre- repent and go back to God." Origin had a vision of universal redemption where he believes that ultimately, since God has all the time in the world and God is infinitely wise and loving, even Satan ultimately will be saved because God will put Satan in the right situation so that even Satan can learn his lesson, genuinely repent, and turn back to God in love. And when that happens, God's last put out the light will be spoken and then matter will sink back into non-being, and all souls will be, again, orbiting around God um, in love. It sounds almost like science fiction. It's so unfamiliar to us, because Mm -hmm. Augustine represents the path that Western Christianity went down. But Origen has this, unbelievably, um, his God is generous, and his God, in a sense, fights against sin also by, by doing these educational missions against it. It's a
0: vision. Yeah, you wrote at the end of that chapter, you said, uh, perhaps the greatest difference between Origen and Augustine is the temperament of their respective gods. Origen's God loves his entire creation and acts to save every individual being. Augustine's God, justly angry at sin, redeems only a small number of people, just enough to display his mercy. And I was wondering how different Western culture might have been if Origen's view had won the day as opposed to Augustine's. What's the difference there with Augustine and wh- why do you think uh, his views prevailed?
1: Augustine is um, one of the geniuses of Western culture, which isn't to say that geniuses prevail, because Origen was also a genius and he didn't prevail. Augustine, um, Augustine's God is angry at sin. And Augustine is the author of the concept of um, original sin, which um, states that as a punishment for the sin of Adam and Eve, this punishment for the sin of disobedience of Adam and Eve. Every generation thereafter is marked by um, original sin, which displays itself through an absence of willpower. He is this—he's uh, incredibly detailed when he looks at psychological motivation. And Augustine says, "We—we we, none of us wants to do evil, but when we're presented with the opportunity to do evil." Even though we might not want to do it, we find ourselves doing it anyway. And that's because our will lacks willpower. And we can feel conflicted about it, but ultimately um, we're also attracted by sin. And that nexus of psychological drives is sin's punishment as well. And the only way some people mysteriously are predestined to salvation, we cannot know why that is, only God knows, and the only way you can even put yourself in a situation where you might be among the saved is if you're baptized into the correct church. And baptism is so essential for redemption that even if, if even if babies die, if they're not baptized, babies cannot be redeemed. So he's he's very tough-minded, um, tough-minded about this. His God is. Um, a little frightening, frankly. And yeah. his God doesn't worry about um, moral transparency. He doesn't have to because he's God. And Augustine says that it's all a mystery, and all we can do is praise God for his merciful decision to redeem some people when everybody universally deserves only condemnation. I think one of the reasons Augustine prevails is, first of all, He's, he's living in a period where the empire has become Christian, where the emperor has decided to back the church that um, Augustine's community represents. And um, Augustine himself is a bishop, which is a, a form of Roman magistrate in his lifetime. And he's, um, he's living at what turns out to be the edge of, of the end of the Roman Empire, so that after his lifetime... There just aren't people of his stature in the West, but people keep copying his own documents so that even though um, in his own lifetime he probably wasn't as influential as he wishes he were, after his lifetime he has a very out-of-proportion effect on theology because he's one of these sources for what gets Western culture through the Middle Ages.
0: My guest is Dr. Paula Fredrickson, author of Sin, the Early History of an Idea. And we're just about out of time, but in your epilogue, you talk a little bit about uh, our modern situation. Uh, What do you want, and maybe you have to step out as an historian here if, if you don't mind, what do you want to leave behind and what do you see as valuable regarding sin and the human condition from these ancient authors? Maybe that's too big of a question for a minute. Isn't no,
1: it? I, I like that, especially given what a lot of the campaign rhetoric has been like this year uh-huh. um, in the states. All of these uh, all of these men who are giving all of their very different opinions about sin are all absolutely convinced that they know exactly what God is thinking. Um, and hmm. there wouldn't be so much variety unless God is a multiple personality disorder. Um, if And there wouldn't be so much self-confidence, I think, if they were a little bit more humble about thinking about what God himself thinks. And I think that's not a bad message either for uh, people on the campaign trail
0: either. All right. Dr. Fredrickson, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. My church is the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about it by going to the website www.fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming programs, can be found at religionforlife.me. You can get podcasts on iTunes. Uh, Religion for Life is on Facebook and Twitter. Religion for Life is a Co production of WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, and WETS FM and WETS HD1 in John Sin City, Tennessee. Be well.